Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans. It is Monday, August 3rd, 10 a.m. We just heard Democracy Now! Next up is an interview with the Assistant Director of the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University, Denise Frazier. Denise joined to talk about an upcoming virtual event happening this Thursday called Life of a Klansman, a Family History in White Supremacy, hosted by Garden District Bookshop, a studio in the woods, and New Orleans Center for the Gulf South. Stay tuned to hear about the event, as well as some other events and opportunities hosted by the center. Thanks for listening. All right. Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for joining in conversation. Um, just to kick things off, we're going to talk about an upcoming event, a virtual event that's happening this Thursday um, called Life of a Klansman, a Family History in White Supremacy. It is hosted by Garden District Bookshop, a studio in the woods, and the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University. Denise, would you start us off by just telling us a little bit about Edward Ball's latest book, Life of a Klansman, A Family History in White Supremacy. Absolutely, and thank you so much for inviting me, Maggie. Um, yeah, so Edward Ball was the very first Gulf South writer in the woods. It's a co-sponsored um, partnership between New Orleans Center for the Gulf South and a studio in the woods. And the project of the Gulf South Writer in the Woods is basically uh, designed to support the creative work, scholarship, and community engagement of writers examining the Gulf South region. And so the inaugural Gulf South Writer in the Woods, who was Edward Ball, um, we feature programming over the course of a year that includes a residency, um, residency dinner with community members, public workshop, and two lectures exploring Race, family, and place. And um, the writers receive a $5,000 stipend, a six-week residency, at a studio in the woods and over, um, over 18 months and other valuable resources. Um, um, but talking specifically about Edward Ball, um, he's a National Book Award winner. He was our very first um, Gulf South writer in the woods and he'll be in discussion with Dr. Lydia Pello Hobbs. And um, the event will be on Thursday, August 6th from 6 p.m. to 7.15 p.m. Central Standard Time. And it's gonna be on Zoom, it's gonna be online. So if anyone is interested in joining, please email gulfsouth at tulane.edu. And just briefly about the book, um, the book is called Life of a Klansman, a Family History and White Supremacy. Uh, so this is a very, this is a very tough work, um, but this is very classic Edward Ball um, in terms of him examining his own um, white supremacist history and um, reckoning with that. Uh, so Life of the Klansman is basically the story of Ball's great-great-grandfather, Polycarp Constant Lecorn, um, who was a working-class carpenter from a white Creole family who lived in New Orleans during the turbulent years of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And as the title suggests, Lecorn belonged to the first wave of militant white supremacists who sprang up following the war. And after fighting for the Confederacy, Lecorn joined the White League, which is a Ku Klux affiliated militia and was an active participant in the post-war reign of terror against African-Americans and the armed insurrection against um, the reconstruction government of New Orleans. So this is the premise um, uh, of the book. And um, so Ball digs really deeply into his ancestors' history and um, um, talks with some of um, LeCorn's descendants. So that's the kind of overall conceit. Okay. And so the event on Thursday is a discussion between the writer Edward Ball um, and then, as you mentioned, um, Dr. Lydia Pellet-Hobbs. What are they going to be getting into in conversation on Thursday at this event? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I'm, I haven't formally met Dr. Uh, Pellet-Hobbs, but I've uh, been following her work a little bit. I'm so curious to um, meet her and have her in discussion about this. Um, she's actually somebody um, who has been radicalized through the Unitarian Universalist youth movement and her politics are grounded in uh, rev revolutionary po possibilities of transformative love and compassion. And uh, she splits her time between Brooklyn and New Orleans and she's organized uh, various movements for social and economic justice. And um, she's also actively researching and writing untold stories of Southern anti-prison organizing and white anti-racist activism. Uh, and so I think that is um, gonna, 
I think she's going to prove a very great discussant with Doc, uh, with Edward Ball in terms of um, really um, unpacking what it means to examine this history, to research this history, and um, yeah, I, I don't know specifically what they're going to discuss, but I think um, it will be alongside those lines of what does it mean to um, to acknowledge white supremacy within one's own family, and um, and and what do you do with that in today's tumultuous um, times where there's uh, where this is definitely a period of reckoning and calling out um, how do we move forward um, uh, with equity, with justice, and and valuing Black and Indigenous lives and Latin Latino lives as well. Uh, so so I'm very curious too. So I can't wait to listen to them on Thursday. Okay. Yeah, I think that is a conversation that a lot of people are, are kind of at the tipping point and figuring out how to have that conversation and be in that conversation is, is a, a behemoth, um, I think, for some people. And for others, it feels fluid and easy. And so the yeah. event, again, is Thursday, August 6th. Yeah. And folks can um, get the registration link or the information by emailing gulfsouth at tulane.edu. Absolutely, or go to our Facebook page, NOLA Gulf South, and you'll, you will also see the Facebook invite for folks who are on social media. Okay, great. So also it's on Facebook, NOLA Gulf South. So Denise, I want to spend a little bit of time going in a little bit more detail on um, the Gulf South Writer in the Woods partnership um, between New Orleans Center at the Gulf South and a studio in the woods. Um, I want to back us up a little bit because I know I kind of skipped over your introduction and your, the introduction of what New Orleans Center for the Gulf South um, at Tulane University is and what you all do. Um, so maybe spend a little bit of time um, talking about what the, center are, what the center is, what your role at, is, at it is, and then the partnership with Studio in the Woods. Um, absolutely, I would love to. Um... I would love to go through that. Uh, so yeah, I work with uh, Rebecca Snedeker, who's the executive director at New Orleans Center for the Gulf South. Um, and I also work with Regina Cairns, who is our executive secretary. And I'm the assistant director. And basically, New Orleans Center for the Gulf South is an interdisciplinary place-based place institute. Uh, we were founded in 2011, and we are a cornerstone of the School of Liberal Arts. And we're dedicated to preserving, perpetuating, and celebrating the distinctive cultures of New Orleans and the Gulf South, um, identified as the bioregion stretching from Florida to Texas. And uh, so we uh, have, we partner with a studio in the woods on various things. And this is also uh, exciting for us because we are partnering with Garden District Bookshop. And um, one of the first times that we've done that since I've uh, started in this job. Uh, and it's, it's a great way for us to support more research in this region. And um, Ed has uh, published several works of nonfiction, more specifically about his uh, personal history with uh, slavery. Uh, and we currently have as our um, current Gulf South writer in the woods, Lady Hubbard, who I find very amazing, prolific, and fascinating. She's uh, the author of a wonderful book called The Talented Ripkins, which um, received the 2018 uh, Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. So if you haven't read this, it's a great, fun book about an African-descended family in the Gulf South who has uh, special powers. Um, and her writing has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement and Callaloo and Copper Nickel, among other venues. Um, and yeah, she uh, actually currently lives in New Orleans and um, is wrapping up her residency with Gulf South Writer in the Woods. And uh, we plan on uh, doing this again. So uh, we are working on getting ready to find our next Gulf South Writer in the Woods and seeing uh, what, uh, what these writers uh, end up producing. And, um, and hopefully this is a great uh, launching pad for them to uh, bring out their new work. Yeah, cool. Okay, so there's a couple of writers that, are, that have been through that or are in that um, residency currently. And it sounds like you know, within the title of Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University, it is all about place and people. Um, and like you said, this kind of reckoning of what is, 
what is the history and what is the place? Is that right? Kind of what are what the ethos of the research is for for people um, in the center? Absolutely, Maggie. And and since you mentioned research, I want to just do a, a plug for our fellowships. So um, we have two research fellowships that are available to anyone. You don't have to be a Tulane professor or a graduate student, although we would honestly love graduate students from Tulane to apply um, to these fellowships. Uh, the Monroe Fellowship uh, um, is our way to promote research in the Gulf South. So scholars, writers, and creative artists whose projects focus on or take place within the bioregion from Texas to Florida may apply. And each award runs for 12 months and can be as much as $10,000. So it's a really, really big opportunity for folks, especially now when everybody is trying to figure out their financial situation um, during this recession. And so the Monroe Fellowship, we provide grant funds that can be used to support research activities, including but not limited to travel to collections or sites and purchase of um, essential materials or equipment for research, which is very important. Um, hiring research assistants or translators. Um, so we typically give out three or four of these grants, but lately we've had a lot of great applications. So we've been giving out a little bit more. And so the deadline to apply for this upcoming Fall Monroe round is October 1st. Um, so if anyone is interested in applying for the Monroe Fellowship, please visit New Orleans Center for the Gulf South website, or you can always email me at gulfsouth.tulane.edu. So that's, a, that's one of the ways that New Orleans Center for the Gulf South supports research in this community, or okay. of this community. <laughs> cool. Okay, so that's the Monroe Fellowship. The deadline to apply is October 1st. Yes. Okay. Great. That's a good opportunity for, I mean, as you mentioned, a lot of a lot of people in this moment. Um, Denise, are there any other upcoming conversations or events um, or opportunities that you'd like to share or discuss that are coming either out of New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University or within the partnership with Writer in the Woods? Uh, yes, yes. I would like to talk about some of the exciting things that we have coming up. Um, on Thursday, August 27th. So first we have the Ed Ball and Dr. Lydia Pellot-Hobbs event on August 6th, this Thursday. But we also have um, a wonderful event coming up on Thursday, August 27th. Um, so uh, we will have a discussion about Andy Horowitz's newly released uh, work um, Katrina his, uh, History, 1915 to 2015. And Andy is a professor at Tulane. Um, he's also a historian and author. And he will be in discussion with the Atlantic senior e editor, Van Newkirk, um, who has a wonderful po podcast called Floodlines that also talks about Katrina. So if anyone needs a, a great new podcast to listen to, please check out the Atlantic's um, Van Newkirk's Floodlines. And um, Katrina, a history, 1915 to 2015, um, is the definitive, definitive history of Katrina, an epic of city making, revealing how engineers, oil executives, politicians, and musicians, and neighbors, black and white, built New Orleans, then watch, and watched it sink under the weight of their competing ambitions. It's, I'm only um, probably 50 pages into this one. My hope is to finish it by August 27th. So I can <laughs> you got your deadline. I have my deadline so I can really enjoy the conversation even more. Um, but uh, it, it's wonderful to see this new work about Katrina told from a historian's point of view. And it's, so, it's um, packed with information um, and allows us to see the through lines that have led us to where we are today and, and more of what happened during Katrina. I feel like we can never hear too much about what happened. Uh, so that's coming up on August 27th, and a little bit later down the line in October, we have our annual Women in Movement um, event starting up again. And Women in Movement is a series that um, New Orleans Center for the Gulf South started a couple years ago with the help of graduate student at the time, Jarrell Hamilton, who's moved on to do other wonderful things. Um, but it's a series that highlights women who work and produce and create culture in New Orleans. Um, and the series analyzes their practices, challenges, and artistic um, endeavors through social justice. So our upcoming Women in Movement series will be in October. 
I haven't finalized the deadline for that yet, but please uh, stay tuned to our social media to see when that will be. And um, our lineup is great for October. We will have the City of New Orleans Cultural Economy Director, Lisa Alexis. Jennifer Williams from the Dismantle Noma campaign will also be there. And Hannah Krieger Benson from the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans will come and discuss policymaking, reckoning, accountability, and the state of culture during this pandemic era. And uh, so that will be in October. And um, yeah, that's what we have so far. Okay, you've got a hearty, a hearty lineup coming up for people um, both this week and August 27th with some literary events and then October um, looks like a full lineup of powerful and deep um, programming called Women, with Women in the Movement. Thank you. It is full. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, cool. I'm so glad, Denise, that you were able to jump on and share all that is going on with um, New Orleans Center for the Gulf South at Tulane University and um, all of these avenues and ways that people can stay connected, um, especially right now in some really important conversations and discussions. And it sounds like, you know, there's some new books that can pop up on people's um, book lists um, and then point towards a place where they can join in discussion or hear a discussion about the content, which I think is meaningful and important and a way to be in community right now, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for inviting inviting me to join this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that, that you want to share or kind of last plug ways to follow along so people don't miss out? Uh, no, I just, um, I guess my one little last plug is uh, for any information concerning our events. Uh, we have a newsletter also that we release monthly. Um, and so if you are interested in joining that, uh, please email gulfsouth at tulane.edu or go to our website um, where you can directly um, get information uh, about what, the, what we would recommend for you to do for the month. Um, Perfect, so that's a, a curated list. <laughs> curated list of healthy information um, about this region. Yeah. Amazing, cool, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Denise. I really appreciate the conversation and I will look forward to joining these events as well. Awesome, thank you. Great to hear. Have a good day. Thanks, you too.
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, U.S. corporate media were in vocal support of last year's coup against Bolivia's Evo Morales. But they're rather quiet now that Janine Añez, who, in a legislative session without a quorum due to the fact that many lawmakers were in hiding, jumped the line of succession and declared herself president, is now putting off holding elections again and has said she is running despite previous promises to the contrary. U.S. media were frictionless transmitters for assertions of fraud in Morales' re-election coming from the Organization of American States, assertions that, some now quietly acknowledge, were groundless. But, as Camila Escalante wrote recently for FAIR.org, the fact that the supposed basis for the bloody authoritarian coup against Bolivia's first indigenous leader was itself meritless has not led U.S. media to re-examine their own role in promoting the charges or the coup itself. To the extent the story's being told, it's being told too late. But Counterspin listeners learned in real time. In November 2019, we heard from Alex Main of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We'll hear some of that conversation today. Also, the 2020 election had enough problems before the coronavirus and the White House disinformation campaign around voting by mail and Trump's latest brazen attempt at derailment and distraction. As we record the show, that would be his suggestion to postpone the election. But by the time you hear it, who knows? We talked about those pre-existing challenges and their historic roots back in February with Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of, among other titles, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. We'll hear part of that conversation as well. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners may have heard that rich person Elon Musk challenged online on the role his corporate need for lithium may have played in the U.S.-backed coup in lithium-rich Bolivia, responded, quote, we will coup whoever we want. Deal with it, close quote. Funny thing, though, when President Evo Morales was forced out under military pressure last fall, U.S. news media were insistent that it was not a coup at all, just the abrupt departure of a leader they never liked. Morales's unconstitutional push-out led to protests, violently repressed, from his indigenous and social movement bases. But U.S. media were busy welcoming and legitimizing self-declared President Janine Añez, who has tweeted that she dreams of a Bolivia free of satanic indigenous rights. Counterspin spoke last November with Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I began by asking him to address U.S. media's depiction of Evo Morales as deeply unpopular in Bolivia. The polls in the country gave a pretty good idea of his popularity. And in fact, what's interesting in terms of the media coverage is that you saw a real shift where some of the initial coverage, you can look at the Washington Post, for instance, just before the elections took place, you know, we're pretty much announcing that this is a done deal, that Evo Morales is most likely going to win these elections, quite possibly in the first round of the elections that took place on October 20th. And of course, there's a good explanation for that. The economy of Bolivia is doing really well, particularly compared to other economies of Latin America. And Evo Morales's policies over the 13 years that he's been president have been very successful in reducing poverty and reducing inequality in improving infrastructure throughout the country. Now, of course, there is a strong opposition, but that opposition in the last few elections has failed to overturn him, get him out of the presidency, or really managed to have a significant opposition even within the Congress of the country. So, you know, the polls that came out gave us a good sense of where Evo Morales stands in terms of public opinion. But then the media narrative uh, shifted quite dramatically in the following days. Well, yeah, I mean, and now the line 
strange as it is, seems to be that, well, it wasn't a coup, but even if it was, that's okay because there were serious irregularities in the election, as if that would somehow justify a coup. But I wonder if you can talk us through what people are reading were the groundings for this widespread protest and for the military intervention, which is that somehow Morales or his people fiddled with this most recent election. What can you tell us, including from Seeper's work, we should know about that? Well, I think what you need to know is that there are two groups that didn't do their job around this in terms of really informing public opinion. The first group was the Organization of American States that was down in Bolivia observing these elections and produced a communique the day after the elections in which they said that there had been a drastic change in the trend in the electronic vote count, the quick count that was taking place, and that it was unexplainable that there had been such a drastic shift in the trend. This particular statement was very easy to debunk. You didn't really need a think tank like ours to do that. I think anyone who really looked at the election results carefully could do it. You could see that there wasn't a drastic shift in the results. And that also the shift that you saw towards the end of the election, which the OAS was referring to, and there was a progressive shift in favor of Evo Morales that widened his margin. He originally had, I think, at 83 percent of the quick vote count about seven points ahead of the closest contender, Carlos Mesa. And gradually, with the remaining votes that came in, the margin increased to over 10 points, which was what was needed for Evo Morales to win in the first round. And that was entirely explainable. In fact, it's what we saw in previous elections by the fact it's pure geography. The areas of the country that reported the results last were the areas of the country that happened to be poorer, more remote, and much, much more favorable traditionally to Evo Morales. So it was quite normal that the margin shifted in his favor. So this was a really misleading statement that had absolutely no basis that came from the OAS. And then that had a huge influence on the second group that I would say misled public opinion, and that's, of course, the media, the mainstream media, that took these statements from the OAS at face value and ran with them, didn't even try to form any kind of assessment of their own as to the value of these statements, and did two things. One, gave these statements complete credit. We and other folks, independent statisticians, were pointing out that these statements made no sense. They didn't take that into consideration at all. The OAS is the voice of authority, and they left it at that. Secondly, the media decided that the references to what was the electronic vote count, quick vote count, which was not the official vote count of the election, was the same thing as the official vote count. So there was this sort of confusion. I think some of the media was genuinely confused. They focused on the fact that there had been an interruption in the reporting of the quick vote count, which, by the way, was something that had been anticipated to begin with. They pointed to that and said, okay, well, then that means that the integrity of the vote count is in question, when, of course, the official vote count that had been occurring, that's a much more lengthy and meticulous count and took place over four days, was never interrupted. And there was never anything from the Organization of American States or anybody else that suggested that there was really a problem with that vote count process. So, again, the Organization of American States and much of the major media misled public opinion as to what was happening with these elections and created this belief that there had been severe irregularities in the vote count. And that gradually, in terms of the media coverage, became something portrayed as fraud and stolen elections, even though there's no evidence pointing to that at all. Well, but if you tell people who are unhappy with an election outcome, well, that was due to fraud, you're bound to get a response, particularly if you are, you know, a powerful entity like the United States, like the OAS, saying, yeah, you know, you shouldn't accept that result. So now we get protests in Bolivia. And how would you 
describe those initial protests and kind of take us through the timeline in between the start of those protests and Morales's quote-unquote resignation. What happened with these protests is that they were, by and large, in urban areas. They were largely middle-class protests. They definitely grew after October 21st, and I would say after the misleading statements from the Organization of American States came out. This legitimized discourse from the opposition, which was that these elections were fraudulent, and that really galvanized the protest movement. And, you know, it turned violent. Some of that violence was oriented towards the voting centers and the voting authority, and there were voting centers that ended up damaged, ransacked. Voting material, including ballots, uh, were destroyed, which, of course, made it more difficult to audit the elections afterwards. And there was also violence directed at supporters and leaders of the movement to socialism, or MAS, Evo Morales' political party, and towards indigenous people writ large. So there was also sort of a racial or racist element to these protests. They grew more and more out of hand, and then you had police mutinies that were staged, I would say, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of last week, in which the police forces of some of the biggest cities in Bolivia, including Cochabamba and La Paz, declared themselves in mutiny and refused to intervene against any of the violent protests that were taking place. Of course, this opened the door to more chaos. And then what really sealed the deal was the fact that the military then came out, the high command of the military, said that they would not intervene against the police. So at that point, you had a complete breakdown, I would say, in law enforcement in the country, and particularly in terms of dealing with the more violent elements of these protests. And finally, you had the high command of the military that called on Evo Morales, to resign. Of course, that's when we really could see that a coup was taking place. And shortly afterwards, Evo Morales and the vice president of the country, Alvaro Garcia Linera, announced that they were resigning. In their announcement, they also made very clear that a coup was occurring. Afterwards, they went into hiding and the next day managed to get on a plane with some difficulty, but managed to get on a plane to Mexico where they were offered asylum and where they are now located. Whereas some of the other leadership from the mass party was holed up in the Mexican embassy and also offered asylum. So very much a military coup, reminiscent in some ways of the coup in Honduras in June of 2009, military coup where the president was taken out of the country, the democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, and similar to back then, even though everyone, I think, at this point is clear that there was a coup in Honduras in June of 2009, back then you also had this sort of debate in the media as to whether or not it was a coup. And I think in part it had to do with the ambivalent position of, at that time, the Obama administration. And now we're seeing, of course, uh, from the Trump administration, a position that's not even ambivalent, that's fully supportive of the coup that's occurred. Of course, they're not calling it a coup. And I think, you know, that sort of sets the frame for a lot of the media coverage, which is also failing to call it a coup. And in some cases, such as the New York Times in an editorial that was published just three days ago, celebrating what has happened in Bolivia as a step forward for democracy. That was Alex Main from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, speaking with Counterspin in November 2019. They're online at seeper.net. Florida passed an amendment last year to return the right to vote to people who had served time for felony convictions, part of a history in this country of expanding the franchise to ensure that those who are affected by government have a say in shaping it. Republicans pushed back, unsurprisingly, demanding that before any ex-felons could exercise their right to vote, they had to pay off any and all court fines, fees, and restitution. 
that too partook of a tradition of switching up brutal for bureaucratic means to bar the inclusion of marginalized populations in the polity. The matter in Florida is still being disputed. Republican voter suppression only ever thinly veiled is fully out of the bag now, and while elite media notice it and occasionally wring their hands, their coverage is too often focused on party lines and does not do justice to the scope, the depth, or the impact of this fundamentally anti-democracy campaign. In February 2020, we spoke with Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of, among other titles, White Rage, the Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. I asked her first to talk about what she sees in the current landscape that represents what she has called bureaucratic violence on people's right to vote. Bureaucratic violence, uh, I use that term because when we often think about disfranchisement, we think about it in terms of like the violence on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in 1965. But bureaucratic violence, that's the array of policies that have been pulled together to figure out how do we get around the 15th Amendment while targeting those that the 15th Amendment was designed to protect. The 15th Amendment of the Constitution says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And what we saw originally was the Mississippi Plan of 1890 that figured out how to get around it with poll taxes and literacy tests. What we're seeing now is what I'm calling Jim Crow 2.0, for want of a better term, are these states doing things like voter ID laws and poll closures and voter roll purges. And all of these things have the aura of trying to protect democracy, trying to protect the integrity of the ballot box. But one, it's based on the lie of massive rampant voter fraud. And when I say lie, I mean that Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, found that between 2000 and 2014, there were there were a billion votes cast in elections, and there were only 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud right. out of 1 billion votes. So that's the lie of massive rampant voter fraud, about two cases per year. But from that, we get the kind of voter IDs laws that say, oh, everybody's got an ID. But what these state legislatures have done is to identify the types of IDs that whites have, that African-Americans don't have, that Latinos don't have, that Native Americans don't have, and then to privilege the ones that whites have, while making it seem fair and across the board. In fact, it is anything but. It is what led the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina to say that the North Carolina state legislature had targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision with its array of laws, including those voter ID laws. And what we're seeing as well are voter roll purges. We saw in Ohio another massive purge of several hundred thousand. And because that list was made public, it had a 20 percent error rate at least on there, including the head of the League of Women Voters. I mean, these targeted hits, the voter roll purges, what they're designed to do, again, it's supposed to sound reasonable. You've got to keep the voter rolls cleaned up. So if people die, they shouldn't be on the list. If people move out of state, they shouldn't be on the list. We get that. But what these states have done is to target people that they say haven't voted regularly. Although the National Voter Registration Act, uh, the Motor Voter Law of 1993, specifically says you cannot remove people simply because they haven't voted. You don't lose your right to vote simply because you haven't voted. But that's what these states have done. And the U.S. Supreme Court last year in June approved that because this is the same Supreme Court that gave us the Shelby County v. Holder decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act. So there are an array of policies, including poll closures, because we know the further you remove a polling place, for instance, from the black community, 
voter turnout goes down because it has to deal with distance and access to transportation. So if you make the polling place inaccessible, so here in Georgia, for instance, they tried to move the polling place for the black community in Sparta 17 miles away. That's inaccessible on a work day. <laughs> and all these things are kind of wrapped, you say, wrapped in the veneer of law. So if you're not paying attention, you can almost think it makes sense. So we're not saying they can't vote because they're black. We're saying they don't have the right form. You know, it's not because they're young. It's because they can't show residency. You know, it's, it's not that they have a disability. It's that we can't get a polling place in that particular thing. It's always just that one level of indirect that, that uh, you know, they think they're fooling you that it's not targeted in some way. Exactly. And, and because it's what I call this bureaucratic violence, we don't see it. And so it doesn't create the sense of urgency. But from 2014 to 2016, the Brennan Center identified that 16 million Americans were purged from the voter rolls. 16 million. That is that silent civic death. Well, in your piece from last November in The Guardian, The Five Ways Republicans Will Crack Down on Voting Rights in 2020, you also list judges and the role of the courts because they've got a role to play here too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, for instance, is that the U.S. Senate has been confirming these right-wing judges who cannot even get their mouths fixed to say that the Brown decision (laughs) um, was appropriately adjudicated, appropriately decided. These are judges who do not believe in civil rights. These are judges who do not believe in voting rights. These are the judges who do not believe in environmental rights. These are the judges who do not believe in women's rights. And the Republicans in the Senate have been pushing these judges through with no real vetting whatsoever. So several have gone through, more than ever before, that the American Bar Association has ruled as being unqualified. And so we have unqualified federal judges with lifetime appointments on the bench. And so what happens then is as these cases, uh, civil society, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, they have been suing these states for these voter suppression laws and how discriminatory they are. But as these cases go up, they're hitting these judges, these judges who do not believe in voting rights. (laughs) And that is why this election in 2020 is so crucial. Because if we have a federal judiciary just loaded down with those who do not believe in basic civil rights, who do not believe in the rights guaranteed in the Constitution, then we are going to be back to where we were after Reconstruction when that Supreme Court basically gutted the 14th and 15th Amendments and skewered the 13th Amendment that has badges of servitude. And it took about 100 years in a civil rights movement to undo the damage coming out of Reconstruction with with that Supreme Court. And that's where we are headed again unless we stop it. Let's talk a bit about resistance. As you note in the book, there is, well, first of all, there's awareness. Not everyone is falling for this protecting the integrity of the process line. But also there's resistance and some states even pushing back and making it easier to vote, right? That's happening too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the resistance, I mean, you're getting incredible organizing in local communities. You're seeing organizations, like I've mentioned before, as well as Fair Fight, in there, mobilizing, organizing, suing. And you do have states that have the leadership that actually believes in democracy. So they are doing same-day voter registration. They are doing automatic voter registration. They are 
in California, one of the things that they did in California, following Oregon's lead, what California did was to say, yes, we're going to do automatic voter registration, but we're going to also pre-register 16 and 17-year-olds mm-hmm. so that when they turn 18, they are automatically registered to vote. I mean, this broadening of the electorate, this sense that American citizens are engaged, invested in this nation, that is not a bad thing. You have a number of states moving in one direction and a number of states moving in the other. One of the things that we saw in 2018, for instance, were a series of ballot initiatives, citizen-led ballot initiatives. For the one in Florida, for instance, that Florida had permanent felony disfranchisement for all intents and purposes. So you had 1.7 million people in Florida who could not vote because they had a felony conviction. And this is after they have served their time, they have paid their debt to society, and they were suffering what is called civic death. And the citizens got together, and I think something like 65% voted for Amendment 4. Right that provided a pathway for the right to vote for 1.4 million of those returning citizens. That is amazing and incredible. And of course, the Republican legislature and Republican governor have worked really hard to undermine that citizens initiative. In Michigan, you had a ballot initiative to have a nonpartisan redistricting commission to get rid of the extreme partisan gerrymandered districts and to realize that extreme partisan gerrymandering where you end up with these really weird, drawn congressional districts that are designed to create additional power in one set of communities and diminish the power in another and said, no, this is about one person, one vote. This is about equal representation. And this is the thing that that I think consistently gets missed. Americans will fight back. That was Carol Anderson speaking with Counterspin in February of 2020. Her latest book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. It's out now from Bloomsbury. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Mom, mom, boy, and...